Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're in conversation with Dumi Obiroto, co-founder of Disturbing London. As with all our guests, we like to ask them why they chose the music industry. Here's what Dumi had to say when we asked him. I've just always had a passion for music since I was young. Since I can remember, I've always loved music. I've always loved singing. It came from church. It came from looking at my father's record collection back in the day. I was singing and I really loved it. And I just really wanted to do music. I've always been doing music since I was young. So what was in um, Mr. Obirota's senior's record collection? that fired up your imagination? High life records. Like, growing up in England, it was very much about Top of the Pops, but then you're listening to your sister's records. Back in the day, my sister was listening to a lot of R&B and swing. You're talking Jodeci. Before even Jodeci, you're talking Johnny Gill. You're talking New Edition, Kissing Game. I like the way you kiss me. You know those records. You're talking those records. Yeah, yeah but then obviously before then, you're talking like Shabba Ranks. Top Cat, lots of R&B, lots of swing. And then it was that and lots like jungle. I listened to hip hop. I listened to Snoop and Tupac, like, because they were the big ones. Until I got to secondary school, that's when I was like getting into Mob Deep and, you know, the deeper stuff. As you're growing up, what are the ambitions for, for the young dummy? What do you want to be? Was music always something that was on the horizon? I just think I wanted to be someone because I grew up in Broccoli. Ian Wright was from the area. I used to go to school with Ian Wright's kids. Then I'd go to a youth club and Robbie G was working in the youth club. So then I've got like Desmond, Robbie G around me. You know what I mean? Like big comedian. Then like my dad owns a shop in Broccoli and Misha Parrish like bobbing around a maxi priest i just wanted to have an impact and kind of maybe just be popular and it was all about being someone but not really knowing what you were going to do to be that somebody yeah yeah you know that's why role models are so important for young kids you know and but very much so for black kids you know seeing positive role models and seeing people in your true reflection excelling at a certain level was that reflection of self the catalyst that you needed to actually believe that your your ambition was real? Yeah, I, I feel um, family structure. And then, yes, role models, because I would say my parents are definitely very much more traditional. Like, okay, go to university, get a degree. My older sister's a lawyer. My other sister's got a master's in um, forensic psychology. My brother obviously done a degree in business management, but he's in music. My parents didn't really push me or put any pressure on me, especially me being the first son. They definitely tried their best. I had so many tutors. I, the, the amount of money they probably spent on tutors, mate, I, I, I still need it. I probably owe my dad some money on that. But, um, <laughs> but in terms of seeing people and being around people and just being exposed to seeing people really making it in the world through hard work, I think that has been a major part of my life. Was education really that thing that you weren't going to aim for? No, I was always aiming for it. You know, you have to as a Nigerian, um, first first generation Nigerian young man. Yeah, I have to find an option. I'm just going to say, let's say I probably was having a bit of learning difficulties later. I understood I was dyslexic. But, you know, when you're coming from a, 
a Nigerian educated family, they just think you're not concentrating. You know what I mean? It's not, uh, you, you're not concentrating. Study harder, go harder. You know what I mean? So I think I, I came up with a kind of um, a mechanism in, into like covering some of that side of things and excelling in some other things. So I concentrated a lot on sports. I, I sp- played a lot of football. I played a lot of rugby. And sciences were always good for me. You know, I really liked sciences. I think I, I need English wasn't the best. Maths wasn't the best. But I think at a young age, I realised that you have to put your best foot forward and you have to work hard, right? But I knew school wasn't going to define me. My sister's parents, even my dad probably left. There's beaming and smiling there. But, <laughs> but my one was a completely, you know, the teachers would be like, you know what? We loved me. You know, it was always about social skills. Oh, he gets along with us really well. You know what I mean? It's just a bit, he gets a bit distracted in class. He's not working hard enough. But I remember like Adrian at that time, I, I just think I used to just really enjoy the relationships in school and getting to know people, knowing my teachers. I had really strong relationships with a few of my teachers, my, my PE teacher, my art teacher. But maybe I didn't put in the work that I should have. I think maybe I, I gave up, but I just think the curriculum wasn't just, especially up to GCSEs, it just wasn't for me. When I started doing my degree, that's when it started making sense. But I dropped out. What were you studying for in your degree? I done sports science, then I did youth and community studies at Goldsmiths. That actually, that was the one for me. That was a major part for me in terms of understanding where you can excel academically, you know what I mean? Because when I was doing lots of my dissertations and all of that, I was getting some really good results because I realised that something, when you're passionate in something and something that you can really relate to and you can articulate, you can really show your intelligence when you overstand something, you know what I mean? But then... The passion of music come about and I found tea and I dropped out. Let's talk about that passion of music and how you guys came together and how you got your first break. How did you start your journey into the into the music business? Just growing up in South London um, and London just in general, culture, youth culture is very much centred around music, you know what I mean, and very much street culture. So from secondary school lots of my boys collected records vinyls lots of them were MC, and it was very much around the so solid page you go you know roll deep era when there was clicks forming and everyone was trying to MC. so 16 year old from south london you're gonna want to be in a click too you know so lots of my boys were in were MCing and go and djing on pirate radio stations and then I was trying to make dub plates, trying to sing on some of the dub plates and all of that, you know. So you're just doing it, you're doing it as a hobby. But one of your friends would get a break. Oh, he's on Pirate now. So you know what I mean? You're getting closer. Oh, he's on Supreme FM. So you get, get so, so it becomes real. And then it's a couple of my friends from East. They've got friends that are in Road Deep. And so it's, it's becoming real. You're like, maybe me next, you know. <laughs> so we were doing that. When you're in your teen years, summers and years just, they all just seem to like fuse together. So it's probably three years of doing music, trying to get into it. Then, you know, you look at, oh, listen, we need to try to make a dub plate because this person made like, I heard this person made 40 grand off this dub plate. So you're like, okay, yeah, let's do our own dub plate. You know what I mean? We could do that too. So then, but then you start hearing, oh, but this person made 50 grand from a party. See that New Year's party, they made this amount of money from the tickets. So you're, you start thinking, oh, maybe if we put money together, we should start doing our own raves. 
So what, you just book a venue, get your DJs, you know what I mean? Get your DJs, fly her outside, okay, cool. I'll be outside Coliseum. I'm gonna go Ministry of Sound. I'm gonna go London City, you know, the city clubs, flyer, and then we're gonna have a, do a party. So I did that for a little while. So I started promoting my own nights. Didn't go too well. It, it was it was definitely, um, it was easier said than done, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, that didn't work out. But then again, your friends are in uni, you're in London, a couple of them are out of town. And so I was going out of town on the weekends just to hang around with my friends in Bristol and all of that. And then one of my friends just on the way to Bristol, I've said this a lot, he was just like, D, I think you should get into artist management. And then I was like, yeah, I've never thought of that. And it just kind of clicked. I started researching about artist management and I was like, you know what, I'm really into business. I really love music. This is like the intersection of both of the worlds. It's artist management, you know what I mean? So that's what led me onto this journey and where I'm here today. Let's talk about you hooking up with Tiny and that journey because it's pivotal in your career and it's been the catalyst for what for what you've gone on to do. You know, like me and T were men and me each other for a reason, you know what I mean? And we're men of being each other's lives because... Um, we're from a, the same community as in Sabah communities. He's younger than me. So by the time he was going to parties, I've never met him. When you're like 16 to 21, there's a bit of a very big social gap. So um, these times I was managing an artist called um, Stealth, just starting, starting to look for video locations, about to shoot his video and all of that. And then I went to my parents' house and um, Tiny's mum, my auntie Rosemary, was at my house. And then she was like, oh, I was like, oh, lovely to meet you, all of that, talking to her. And then she's like, Dumi, what are you doing? And I said, I'm starting to get into ice management. And then she was like, my son raps. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm really cool. I know what's really happening on these streets. If I don't know your son, you know that usual. About three weeks later, one of our uncles made soul recipes, had a party in his house. Tiny was there. He told me his name, he MCs, and he told me he's part of like Aftershock and all of that. And so I, I, I these days I was watching um, a lot of Channel U and then Bruiser's video came on and Tiny was on the remix. And then I was like, wow, this kid sounds really good. And then a couple of weeks later, he released this song called Wifey that was blowing up. And then I was like, do you know what? I need to, I need to find my auntie Rosemary's um, son. And then my mum was like, she was taking long to get me a, a number. And then I bought a place at this time around in Sidcup. So I was living in Sidcup with my business partner then. I was at the cinema with my wife, which is my girlfriend then in Greenwich. And then he walked past and then I jumped out. I was like, yo T, I was like, remember me? Oh, you do music? And then he, he sent me some demos. I really liked them. There was an interview that he did on Kiss with Aftershock. And he was one of the kids, he was very, eloquent and I felt that he wasn't trying to change the way he was talking on radio and then yeah we just started recording records and we just started to get along with each other and the rest is history. That's the start of the journey in 2004. There's a very interesting part that comes in 2006 and that is the formation of Disturbing London and when we talk about pioneers on the Did You Know podcast what you did was pioneering. So talk us through your reasons behind setting up Disturbing London with Tiny and the aims and ambitions. So basically, we set up a label called DL Records. So at the time I was with her, my partner was called Lyndon. Me and Lyndon went our separate ways. And I was just like, we need to change the name because obviously Lyndon's left and then I thought of Disturbing London. 
when you think about when you try to take yourself back to 2006, Adrian, there's so many things that happened that are so key and vital for where we are today. When I was setting up the record label at the time, obviously T was my first act. We were very much focused on making T the star, right? I'm investing my money into him, but he needs a future outside of music. Music, because all the books I read, I was almost like, artist careers don't last for that long. I didn't know how long it lasts, but one thing about T, he believed in me and he gave me the opportunity, you know what I mean? Without having his talent, I wouldn't have been. So I was like, you know what? Let me just give you a percentage of the company. So we started like that. I was just like, I'll give you the percentage of the company and we'll run it. That was a key, one of the key things. So he felt invested and we earned something from the jump. Then, obviously about having an iconic label and doing all of that, that was about making it feel like it needed to feel British, it needed to feel urban, it needed to feel like when the kids see it, I wanted the logo to represent something to the kids and it represent, it, it kind of told a story to them and they owned it. So that was key for me too. And then thirdly, the overall business on Disturbing London and the business that we did with T. I was doing work experience at a distributor, so I knew the distribution like split. But I was just more importantly at the time, by the time T got signed, we had been doing it six years on the underground all by ourselves. How important was it for you to sign with a record company, particularly when you were when you had Disturbing London? Was there ever a point where you guys thought, you know what? This thing's rolling. We're just going to do it on our own because from a business perspective, it makes more sense to, you know, we get 100% of the pot as opposed to what our deals look. I put out Hood Economics already that table by itself. So that was distributed via Cadiz, who I was working for at the time, doing work experience for. And my business partner was my mentor and partner at the time was the head of Cadiz distribution. So I knew what the back end was for T's records. At the time, I knew how expensive it was going to be to take them to that next level. Because at the time, you're competing with the Chipmunks and the Tinchy Striders and Ironics. It had become more glossy. It was more expensive. So for me to take it to that next level, it was going to cost us hundreds of thousands, which I didn't have. We had the talent and the music, but we didn't have the, the money at the time. So the most important thing was was about the power that we did have was the creativity and understanding where T needed to be. So it was an exchange at the time, you know, it was you have the know-how and the understanding of how to sell music around the world. And we've got this kid that we know is one of the hottest kids in the streets at the time. And he's got the ambition and we've got the potential to really go and take it to the world, you know. And so it was just about trying to find a partner who was going to allow us to do that. And Parlophone, Nathan Thompson and Miles Leonard at the time, they saw it and they did the deal. Once you've signed the deal, you put out what is a seminal British record in Pass Out. One of the things we've often talked about in the various recordings of the pod that we've done today is about success but we've never we've not really touched on emotion so but i'd be really interested to find out from you how you felt as a manager and as a friend when that record hit it's all a roller coaster it's so crazy at the time i remember you know the record was buzzing because he was underground so be it the under 18 scene we was very much around that whole circuit outside London circuit, doing the radio stuff, you know, the urban underground. So by the time it went number one, we had a colossal record. So you could say when he started having a colossal record, 
You know how it is, Adrian, to be a manager and when you believe and you put your life, you know, as managers, man, we put our life on the line for these acts, you know, and people don't really understand. We're probably the first ones to be told, oh, I need this and the last ones to be thanked. We're always the people that we get left with the egg on our face because we're the people that walk into the building telling everybody this person is going to do this, this person is going to do that. And then we make everyone go out and give the, give us the check. And then everyone's waiting for you to fuck up. You know what I mean? So every manager in the world probably thinks their artist is one of the best acts in the world, you know? And at the time, when you get a number one record, you have got the best record in the country at the time. So it made all the hard work. It made all, all the time that I spent with him since he was 16 at the time, just putting on time. We put in a lot of energy and the stars, yeah, were very much aligned. And it was a magical thing. I remember it was magical. From the moment he went into the studio with Labyrinth that day and they recorded it, I remember it was magical. We really pushed it as a street record with no expectations of it being a single. And it just caught fire, caught on fire, man. And the rest is history. But it was almost like he did it. I knew he could do it. And it was almost like, but boy, we just need to do it again. You were signed to Parlophone. I was wandering around when that artist signed to Virgin. So there were, we, we were always crossing over. But there's always a point when you start as a manager and you are, you're the new kid on the block with an act that has potential. The act is the act that it's, it's blown up and you are, you know, you're the man. Did you feel that your relationship changed or uh, and the, the, the dynamic changed once you guys had had a hit and in the way that you dealt with the record company? I think, no, our relationship, I think I've been fairly consistent with how our business is structured with Parlophone has been pretty much the same. You know, we record the record, we deliver them records and they say if they like it or not and they put them out. You know what I mean? It's a partnership. So we started as a partnership and we're still a partnership. It just meant that when he was successful, let's say I had more partners. So it was a bit more of a global affair. How much pressure did you feel as a manager at that time in trying to repeat and in trying to maintain that success? Do you know what? I didn't feel any pressure, you know, and that's the honest truth. We'd gone through the pressure. You know what I mean? There was times before we got there, I'd been broke. I'd nearly lost my house for tea. You know what I mean? Managing tea. Before we got signed, I had, I had spent all my savings I'd spent all my money on shooting videos. Tea was still like my responsibility. We were, we were trying to go out to still maintain and, and do stuff to keep up appearances, but I didn't have any money in my pocket. You know what I mean? So I'd gone, I was rock bottom before we did the deal. So when we did the deal, I was like, there's no pressure. I've gone through that pressure. You know what I mean? Six years of doing it and then everyone, your parents answer you what you're doing and you're saying you're managing something that you're not sure. They're like, where's the money? But you, we can see the money in when I'm taking him outside London and the little girls are chasing him out. In my head, that's the money. I may not be getting paid for that gig. Or let's say if Live Nation hit me up to book him for wireless for £250. Yeah, I'm not getting paid on a commission, but I can see the potential. You know how it is. Yeah. So, but everyone else is around you saying, where's where's the physical money? Like, where is the monetary value of this side? Where's the money? You're just spending at the time, Adrian. You know how it is. So by the time we got into the label, we knew what we had to do. Studio, deliver the records. I had to talk to the producers, 
Find out who the hottest people are. Make sure he goes in the studio. We push each other as much as we, we've always have done. It's just me and him talking to each other. You know what I mean? So the record that we've done, no one thought it was going to be a number one anyway. So we just have to go with our gut. We can't start overcomplicating things or it was a natural energy at the time. So you just maintain that and keep it going and enjoy it. How much did you enjoy that though? I would only say it starts getting complicated when you get into like album number two. When you have a big act, it changes everybody's life. It changes the act's life. It changes your life as a manager. It changes the A&R's life. It changes the label. You know what I mean? It, it impacts everybody. So when um, the album number two comes, you know, everything's changed. Tiny's changed. Tiny's a young, rich man. He's a successful young man now. He's got global commitments. You know what I mean? You've got every Tom, Dick and Harry talking to you. You can do this, you can do this. Why don't you stay in America? Why don't you do this? Then you've got England still here trying to keep, you know, you're doing tours. You're doing, you, you've got arena tours to sell out. You're doing this brand deal here, but you still need to record the second album. And from there, we have this incredible story of Disturbing London. I think that for people that don't know, Please go and investigate because one of the things, having seen you guys grow, one of the things I loved about Disturbing London was the fact that you weren't afraid to try and do things that were new and work outside the box. And I think there were times where people didn't understand what you were doing. So, you know, you clearly have been one of the most influential and forward-thinking entertainment companies. I was not going to lie, because I'm young. I was young, ready to go. You know, the world's, the globe's in your hand. You're like, every experience, you're learning new things. You're traveling the world. You're meeting new people. So you're, you're, your mind's just absorbing a load of things, you know? Um, met some great people on the journey. Obviously, that's probably how I met Uncle Tim and Big, Big Danny, you know? And yourself, you know, you meet lots of people and you're like, okay, this has happened before me. There's been people that have done this before me. Let me get to know where what they've done. Let me hear the mistakes that they've made. Let me hear where they feel we can push it. You know, so you're meeting people and you're learning more and you're seeing that this has been here before. So it's a bigger game that you're seeing. I don't think I slept in like three years, but it was it was exciting. Every time I do something is disturbing London and every time I do something for Tiny, it's about changing the perception and trying to just raise the levels of showing people that the black British experience has got different perspectives. It doesn't always come from one place. Not all of us, because we're from Brixton, we like this, or because we're from Peckham, we like, or not all of us are from Brixton and Peckham, you know what I mean? We've got, it's a completely different perspective. So I feel every time I do something, I'm just trying to show different layers of our culture in a beautiful way. One of the things that I I know that you're particularly proud of is Managing Wiz and also Afro Republic. Tell us more about how that came about and the creation of Afro Republic. Found Wiz in 2011 when we were in um, Nigeria. And again, just the same, I'd set up a good business for T. T was, T was actually in, he was moving, he was on top of, the gate, of his game at the time. And I just felt like it was a nice time to take on another client. And, it, and again, it was really about showing the Western world how far Nigeria had come along to produce a Nigerian act from Nigeria, from Lagos Street, that was sounding as fresh as a kid 
from like Atlanta at the time. You know what I mean? He he had a crossover massive pop potential. He was there from the start from Hollow at Your Boy. So I just felt this kid was another global impactful artist and meant so much for the black culture and the black experience. So I started looking after Wiz. So basically I've done Undisturbing Ibiza for Tiny. So Tiny was very much part of that was his little business. That's his, you know, outside of what he was doing. You know, he owned the brand. He had a live brand that he could bring. You know, when you have an act, an artist that has contributed to culture, I felt it's cool for the act to have something that they can own a bit of IP that they can own and something that they could show their, their weight. Okay, this is who I am and this is a platform and this is how I can help a few more acts come into my world and give you a platform too. So I feel Tiny was doing that. We were in our second year in the in Ibiza. He was, we were booking people. We were booking like from Tory Lanes to like gigs to, to Bad Bunny. And Tiny's the headline act and it's his night. So I feel that was a nice bit of an IP. With Wiz, Wiz had cancelled a few shows. You know, he wasn't in the best place at the time. And we, I sat down and I was like, you know what, we've cancelled a few shows. There was one time I walked into his room and he was watching a fella performance in Berlin. And I was like, he's obsessed with fellow. And I was like, you know what, bro? I think you need to do something like this. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I think we need to do it in Royal Albert Hall. And I showed him the Royal Albert Hall. I said, this is a reputable venue. If you sell this out, Wiz and Friends, this would be like a massive moment for you. Royal Albert Hall sold out. And so I was like, you know what? I think we should start um, a festival, an African festival. I thought of the name Afro Republic. We can do it in O2. And... I sat down with Wiz. I'm literally like, this is like a massive thing for you. At the end of the day, look, all the other acts are coming through. You're the biggest African act. It'll be nice. You own your own IP. You own Afro Republic and can go around the world. And again, we done it in 02. The lineup was great. It sold out because that was my whole thing. That's what he deserves because he is a, he's an icon. Music has been good to me. Like, it's been really good. And I'm very thankful and grateful that music's been great to me. And, and I'm humbled because me and T were even talking like humbled because I know it's not, it hasn't happened like that for everybody else. You know what I mean? And a lot of people, but I just always try my best. You know, lots of my things come from a place of love. I make a lot of decisions from my heart, you know? And sometimes that's been a disadvantage, right? And it's, and it's probably served me wrong in some aspects, you know? And sometimes it's probably made people not understand some of my reasons behind things, yeah? But one thing I would definitely say, it's protected me and guided me to this point to be here. And I believe that whatever's happened was meant to be. The one thing, Dumi, that we've all really enjoyed, or that I've certainly enjoyed, and I, I speak for Danny, and everybody else, and it's something I want to get into later on as well, is seeing the next generation come through and really solidify a place in the business and own it in a way that we couldn't do when we first started. But it's really important that that that, that support for the next generation of black executives, male, female, executives of colour, that we support and that we help empower because that's transition, that that's change, that's evolution, and that's very, very important. And to that point, 
You've now done well over a decade at the top of the game. How have you seen that change for black people in the business? I feel things have changed for black execs in the music industry in the last 10 years. Not because the industry's changed and learned how to accommodate black talent and all black executives. I believe that technology has helped the perception of black music make things change. You know, it's become even playing fields in a sense where you can make impact if you have something that's hot and you can do it without the label. You know what I mean? And I feel that that has made the record labels and partners have to deal with talent in a different way and probably the execs that are around the talent in a different way and understand that they probably have to have a certain type of talent in their buildings too, you know? And I feel it's really sped through or the perception of it being sped through has happened throughout this, this like the last year and a half around the Black Lives Matter movement, you know what I mean? That's really been the catalyst of a lot of the conversations. But um, we've still got a so we've got a long way to go, Adrian. There's still no real, I don't really like to talk about things because it almost feels like we're always crying over spilt milk or, you know, or we're not appreciative of some of the changes that have made. Definitely the acquisition of, of you know, the twins for Def Jam is one of the biggest moves that's happened in the UK in history, you know what I mean? So 100% credit to David Joseph and the team, you know? Amazing. Hopefully that is going to be the most successful thing ever, you know? And it will be. Um, but I still feel we've got a long way to go because, again, you know, if, it, if, if it's just them, sometimes it can be seen as it, it's almost harder for them because they've got a lot more pressure on them because it's just them, you know what I mean? And as far as they're given the same opportunities and are given as, as much rope as their white counterparts, you know what I mean? That's very much important too, you know? So my thing is, it's been neglected so much yeah, that it's only... It's only right that there is a little bit of change now in a sense where you couldn't even sign. You, you, how can you sign AJ Tracy or, or Stormzy or a Digger D and, and believe you can sign these type of acts and not have black faces in your building anyway? If you were starting your journey with Tiny now, what would you do differently? Would you do anything different? I'd probably keep independent. Maybe it would have been the same cycle because if you say relatively, right, Adrian, like if I found Tiny and it was the same amount of years in this time and I was doing his business independently with a distributor for six years, I probably would have done the same cycle as I actually have done kind of the same businesses, maybe, you know, like an, an, an AJ Tracy or Stormzy, you know, Stormzy was sitting outside for a little while doing his own thing independently and went and done a deal a partnership deal with the records. You do it independently, self-finance, use the money from the records to pay for my videos, keep it moving. And up, up until a point where I felt that I needed the help and I knew the value of the partnership, I'll do the deal. So I think I probably would have done the same thing. How influential do you think Disturbing London's been on the business models and the new generation? I've influenced that a lot and definitely trying to own a brand and set up your own business and really go ahead and do it yourself. The DIY culture, I think definitely I've influenced that a lot. It was definitely somebody like a Mega Man inspired me to do that. You know what I mean? So you only learn 
from the people that do it before you. So yeah, I definitely would say we've had a major impact and a contribution to that. Are you proud of that? Yeah, massively proud of that, yeah. What's been the proudest moment in your career? Olympics was massive. Tiny doing Olympics. Um, when I won the, um, the Evening Standard Entrepreneur Business, like the, the award for that, Entrepreneur of the Year, that was a massive thing for me, for the Evening Standard, because it was just literally loads of people from different arrays, like different businesses. So that was very much a proud moment. But I've had many, you know, selling out arena tours. It goes on. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying like Bruce, but I feel I have many moments where you feel I'm proud of that. You know what I mean? That was actually great. Even selling out Afro Republic to do residencies in Ibiza. There's lots of things. Jesse performing at the Grammys was a good moment. You know, you think to yourself, wow, I'm at the Grammys. It's been a dream. That's why I really want the next chapter in my career. It's really about legacy. And I've been trying to do that, but it's about the people that I bring through, you know. In amongst this whole, this whole journey, I haven't spoken about all my amazing PAs that I've had. Thank you to all the partners that I've had, you know what I mean? I've had some amazing personal assistants. I've had amazing right hands like GMs and people that I've worked with, that I've employed, that are, you know, real solid players. I've been around a lot of people who have, have given me confidence because they've believed in my vision before the labels have decided to invest in me. I've had people that have invested their time in me before I had the co-sign to be seen as somebody that can run a business. Even now, Adrian, you know, it could be questioned like, oh, can you run a business? You know what I mean? And then when you think about, you've employed people for like 10 years, you know what I mean? You've, people, there's million, with my own books and my own businesses, loads of people that have got mortgages through my business you know what i mean like i've been running i've been running business and helping people and 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 giving people experience and doing appraisals and managing stuff but that's done because they put their time in me and i give them my time back but again because i've been literally sitting outside of the business how many people would see that and understand when you really look under the bonnet i've actually been running a business for the last like decade and doing it quite well, you know what I mean? And, and that's an experience, but again, things are gonna change, but there's many of us, if you change where you kind of look for your talent, I think you would find that if they start looking in certain places and in certain sectors, if they look at there and honestly look at there with clear eyes, if they recruit from those pools, then the diversity will start changing within the buildings, they just need to, they need to swim in a different pool. And what do you want your legacy to be? I mean, there's still an awful lot of the dummy journey to go, but you mentioned it, so let's discuss it. Just the young people or whoever, just to feel like they can do anything or be anything. You know what I mean? That they can transfer, they can evolve. And as far as they have a passion in something, they can, the excellence is key, you know, just trying to be excellent and trying to achieve that. So I feel that's what I want to leave. It's about love and passion, you know what I mean? And that's what I would really want people to feel. And finally, you said that one of the things that drove you was the fact that you wanted to be somebody, you wanted to be popular. Have have you achieved it? Yeah, I think so. To be honest with you, Adrian, I think I have. Humbly, I have. And now I don't want to be anymore. <laughs>
Yeah. And has it, has, it made you, has it made you happy? Oh, man, it's definitely made me happy. It's made my, my, my family happy and my wife is happy. And yeah, definitely, uh, it's made me happy. We've all learned a lot in this time, Adrian, what really makes us happy. There's a lot of things that we thought made us happy before this time. So life is much more simple than it really seems sometimes, you know? Dumit Oguirota, entrepreneur, manager, visionary, Thank you very much for spending time with the Did You Know podcast. We really appreciate it. Adrian, I appreciate you and and I appreciate what you're doing and I wish you all the best with Did You Know. And I hope, hopefully, people have found out a little bit more about me than what they've heard on other podcasts. And I've appreciated your time too, Adrian, and all the best. Bless you, sir. Thank you very much indeed. I'm Adrian Sykes. Thanks for listening to Did You Know, a Downstreet production. Our thanks to Dummy for sharing his stories and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, our production team of Cass Denton and Lanique Swartz, and to Ella Ruby on the socials. Our theme tune is composed by Vega Brothers. Honourable mentions to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Keep listening for further information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode with Cookie Price, Senior Label Manager at The Orchard and one of the true legends of the UK music business as we talk about her remarkable journey and career to date. This was Did You Know. Until the next time.